this is, uh, we're kind of getting to the end of this long year of Matthew parables. And Matthew always ends his parables so harsh, you know. I always like, I always hate getting to the end, reading the lesson, and then you get wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of our Lord, <laughs> right? I, I always like ending it on, you know, and, and, and then we will, and, and, and then God will save everybody, gospel of the Lord. But this is Matthew. Matthew's a little bit harsh. And uh, Jesus is, Matt, you know, God in Matthew's a little bit, you know, he, he has a sense of right and wrong, and there's a sense of law. But today's parable is, I always think of it as the favorite parable of investment bankers and finance gurus, especially the Christian finance gurus. Uh, they love this one, right? And their moral of the story always is that therefore we should be engaging in complex financial instruments with our money. I'm not quite sure that's where Jesus was coming from. You have to remember with Jesus, bankers in Jesus' time were not just, you know, guys in polos who helped you finance a new car and went home at 4.30 p.m. You know, they were more like loan sharks. They were unscrupulous. The business was completely unregulated. Uh, lots of predatory lending and excessively high interest. A lot of the prophets would even say that it was a sin to charge interest, that, that it was a sin to even be a banker. So it's a little hard to square that what Jesus is really trying to tell us is that we, that we should all be trying to, you know, engage in high finance. But then there is this parable, right? And we see in this parable that the, the, these, this, this master goes out and gives his slaves the, this money to be in charge of, uh, which is kind of interesting because a talent, like I told the kids, that's a year's salary for most blue-collar people. They never touched a talent. This is a massive amount of money for these slaves to be in charge of. And to try to figure out what to do with that much money, probably would have been a really big, would have been an overwhelming kind of task. And so we see, of course, how it works. The one with the five comes back and makes five more. The one with the two comes back and makes two more. I'm like, dang, that's 100% yield. What investment gets 100% yield? Crypto, not anymore, right? And Sam Bankman Freed was handed five talents, and he made five trillion more, but they didn't really exist. No, that's a different parable. I think that guy went and he bought futures in Travis Kelsey jerseys. That's, that's my theory. I don't know how else you can get 100% yield on your investments. But yeah, think about that. How's he do it? Well, of course, there's the third guy who digs the hole in the ground to protect it. And, you know, when the master comes around, he's happy that the other two made lots of money for him. And the third one, again, gets the outer darkness with wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I think to myself, this must be what it's like to be a first-year banker at Goldman Sachs, right? You only made 8.5%, eight more hours of work every night. Yes, master! Drink more coffee, drink more coffee. I don't know if that's what it's actually like, but that's what I picture Goldman Sachs does to their employees, right? Because you have to be up for the Tokyo Exchange anyways. 
But I always felt bad for that third guy. Always felt bad for the third guy. I mean, you think about it, he didn't blow the money. He didn't go and buy himself a fancy new chariot, you know, and, and a membership at the Jerusalem Country Club. He didn't go to Severus Wealthius Decadensis's exclusive nightclub and blow it all. He was worried about it, so he protected it. He hid it. I always felt bad for the guy. I'm like, well, he didn't really do, what he was wasn't that bad. The hard part about this parable is that the guy who is probably just overwhelmed with the responsibility of all that money ends up coming off like the bad guy. The guy who makes the safe and cautious decision ends up getting punished. The act of not risking becomes the crime. Now, this isn't entirely out of character for Jesus. He, he does tend to teach us, don't, don't get too much into hoarding stuff. He has that parable of the barns, right? Don't go and just collect all your stuff and keep putting it in barns and building more and more barns to have more and more stuff. So then all you do is collect your stuff when the truth is you could die tomorrow and then your stuff won't do you any good, will it? So Jesus does tend to take kind of a don't get too attached mentality. There is a certain wisdom in this. Right? We know that if you just take cash and try to hide it, you become a target. I saw one of these cop shows. This guy had taken, he got $7,000 in cash, and I think he got it legally, but then he goes and he fans it all out and takes a selfie and posts it on Facebook, broadcasting to everybody in the city that he had $7,000 in bills in his apartment. What happened to him that night? Two guys came to rob his apartment. He went to protect his 7,000. They pulled out and killed him for 7,000 bucks. So two guys get to rot in jail for the rest of their lives. They were like 19. Boom, 80 years in jail, or you know, 70 years in jail, dead, 7,000 bucks. There's some real wisdom to not just trying to hide and squirrel money and keep it on hand. But I have to ask, is this really about investing money? I mean, Jesus didn't have a whole lot of money himself, and he's always talking about giving it away. So does it make sense that Jesus is suddenly wanting to make sure all Christians, you know, have a good 401k? Now, that's still good advice to have a good 401k, but maybe this parable of talents isn't just talents as money, but talents in the bigger sense that they represent the gifts and the resources and the tools that God has given us and that we can use. And that the question is, how am I going to use what God has given me in a way that builds the kingdom of God? Am I going to take what I have and hoard it all together and protect it? Or am I going to take this one earthly life I get, this one life, and use it as an investment in the kingdom? Let me give you a little illustration that tells a little bit about the difference. In my neighborhood, you know I pick on my neighborhood, there are people you know and people you don't know. The people you know, you know because they're involved in things. They'll run the community potluck. They'll do the fruit harvesting tour. We do that. It's kind of a fun thing. 
You know, a lot of these people planted grapefruit trees in the 90s. They've got huge trees, and then the, the doctor says, oh, now that you're on megascatablacabarg, or whatever drug, you can't have a grapefruit anymore. And they've got this big tree. I'm always more than happy to relieve them of the burden of too many grapefruits. I load up my flyer wagon. But these are the people who do these kind of fun things. My HOA does do more than just send out weed letters. And you know the, those people you usually know, because it's the same people when you go trick-or-treating on Halloween. They'll have the light on or the garage door open. They'll have the candy bowl out. They'll, they'll be saying hi to all the neighbor kids. They'll even give candy to teenagers at 8 p.m. Because, <gasps> you know, there's nothing worse than teenagers walking around and asking for candy. They never get in worse trouble than that. They're the ones that'll offer to watch your house while you're on vacation. Who know your kid, let your kids play in their yard at the bus stop. They're part of the neighborhood. And they have a kind of attitude that's always kind of giving and sharing and helping out. Then there's those you don't see very much until they think something's happening that's going to hurt property values, and then they come out to warn you about crime waves. Crime waves. Right? They lock the doors on Halloween and grumble about how kids from other neighborhoods come here. How they bring vans of kids from other places to get our candy. And I look at that and I'm like, oh man, you got a $100,000 custom lifted F-250 with wheels that could drive over my forerunner. Plated with little gold thingy-mabobbers in the middle. I think you can afford another bag of Skittles. They're the ones who don't want a playground in the park because other people from other neighborhoods will come. And those people didn't pay for it. Grr. I feel like their lives are on a perpetual snarl. It's not like there's no crime in the world, or no, you know, like it, it, that there aren't things that aren't that there aren't practical concerns. But these are things you can problem solve if you want. If your attitude is to be generous and open, you can find ways around these things. But everything then becomes about me getting my stuff and protecting my stuff, and how everybody out there wants to take my stuff and take advantage of me, and the whole world is full of criminals and moochers who are hovering around the Casas Adobe's Terrace looking for ways to get your stuff. And then I just think, what a grumpy, miserable way to live. I told my wife, if I become that, just shoot me. Just do me an, I'll, I'll write the note to the cops. I'll take a video. Police, it's not Christie's fault. I started grumbling about neighborhood kids taking my candy. I deserve it. No. But it just seems like such a miserable way to be, to be so protective and grumpy and, and this siege mentality, building your barns and accumulating stuff in your barns. There's all, you know, 
It just doesn't seem like a fun way to be. Doesn't seem like a fun way to be. But being generous, not protective, I think you get way more for your talents than you do. Let me give you another example. If you go down La Troya Boulevard, over, over there, keep going south of the river, go south past the Walmart corner store, and there's a fire hall, and then there's a preschool, the Emily Meshter Early Learning Center. I always wondered how the district had the money for this really nice school. Well, I have an inn in the Flowing Wells district. So I asked my, I asked my inside source, Where'd they get this, the money for this really nice preschool? Because not every district has a, its own district-free preschool. Well, there's a woman named Emily Meshter. She works in some sort of finance job. Very good at making money from money. Single, doesn't have kids. And was calling Tucson districts. And I don't know why Tucson. I think she's even from New York. There's some connection. Was calling Tucson districts saying, hey, you know, is there anything your district needs? I'll buy you something. Believe it or not, only Flowing Wells called her back. So you can now find out who is the superintendent who didn't call back for the free money. But Flowing Wells called back right away. Oh, yeah. What do you need? It would be great to have a preschool. Okay. Boom. Wrote the check. There you go. There's your preschool. And it's got classrooms, and they've got... You know, you can get speech therapy. They got the nicest playground in the middle. It's awesome. And she'll actually come and read for the kids and give out books. They all get to go home with a free book. Some kids get scholarships. You know, sitting there, I think, wow, how do you get 100% return on your money? And I think, she hears somebody who knows money and knows how to get a good yield. Because those kids who go to preschool, the data shows if you get a good preschool, you're more likely to do well in elementary school, more likely to graduate high school, more likely to go to college, which means you make more money, which means you pay more taxes, which means you also commit less crime, so you have less cops policing you, which takes tax money. I'm like, man, I'll bet society has benefited by millions more through that preschool than what it cost her to build it. Did it return to her checkbook? Not really. But did the kingdom gain 100% yield? So there's really, if you look at it, three ways that we can use our talents and invest them for the kingdom of God. Here's my three points for the day. Three points. One, you invest in people and relationships. You put your gifts, money, time, energy, into other people into the neighbors, into the community, into personal support, emotional support. You make a better human environment. Two, invest in the poor. Because when the poor aren't poor, then everybody wins, really. Right? Invest in things that makes the world better. And three, invest in the community. You know? You make the world around you better by giving your time to things in the neighborhood and the world around you. It's the kind of life that makes the return on your investments far beyond anything you'd get in crypto. And 
I, I, as you guys know, I was gone for almost four months from the summer through the fall. Since I came back in October, there's been four deaths in our congregation. I've had to spend, I've gotten to spend a lot of time in the last three weeks involved, looking back, doing funerals, memorials. I've been over at the Sunflower Community Center Fiesta Room twice now for celebrations. And it's always very telling to see at the end of life what it were the things that had an impact. And twice we've had the thing where they sort of passed, they've passed the mic around, said, you know, talk about so-and-so, and they pass the mic around, and they share things, and the things they share fall into two categories, 99% of them. One, experiences they had with the deceased that were meaningful to them. You know, they, sometimes they were fun experiences, you know, but nonetheless, they were things that happened with the person that had an impact. And the second thing is the things that the deceased person did for others. They're giving, they're sharing, they're sacrificing. It's always, so-and-so did this. So-and-so helped me with this. I'll, I'll give you one example. And I, I think he'd be okay if I told you the world this. Richard. Richard sat right over there, right about where Linda is. And at the first service, he came every Sunday except when he was feeding the homeless. And as I said at his service, I said, you know, if you're going to be gone for anything, I can think of a lot of worse reasons. That's not permission to be gone. But if you have to. And so that's, so once a month he did that, he didn't come. So they're passing the mic around and one guy grabs, I'm like, this guy, I don't know how he paid his own bills because he was just giving, giving, giving. I mean, one person's like, oh yeah, he saw my dog, so he left 40 pounds of dog food on my porch. Wow, that was nice. Oh yeah, he did this, he did this. One guy stands up, grabs the microphone and goes, I have a granddaughter up in Phoenix. She got into a fire and got burned. And I sat down to talk to Richard about this. And Richard was a good listener, he said. Richard sat and didn't just listen to what happened to her, but started asking questions. What did she like? What were her interests? What were things that were important? And the guy didn't initially understand why Richard took so much interest. Richard comes back, I don't know how many weeks later, made a quilt. He stitched a quilt for the granddaughter and in the squares put things that she liked. He memorized it and put it into the quilt. Talk about like the most meaningfulest, thoughtfulest thing ever done. I think of that and I'm like, man, I'm not that thoughtful. But what a difference it would have made, right? The guy comes back and says, hey, I got a guy in my neighborhood. He made this quilt for you. You know? How do you measure a return on that? You can't with dollars. But what a difference it made to her. What a difference it made in her life. What probably a difference it made in her recovery. How do you measure that? I don't know, but that's how I think you get a return of 100%.
That's how you get that kind of yield on the investment of your talents. That's how you take the things that God has given you and you put them into the kingdom of God and you watch God make wonderful things from it. That's what you do with your talents. Amen.